about that? You have my screen, I suppose. Well, don't want to do that first. Okay. Well, good morning and happy. Uh, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year! As you uh, as you prepare to to uh, end the 2020 finally and uh, and get started on a, a new year, I know this is going to be um, a, a different sort of way to uh, close out the year. As we close out this year, especially, um, I feel like on social media, other places, we're just sort of covered up with people who are celebrating uh, the end of this year. They're just saying like, oh, finally, right? We have memes and status updates and all these things where. People are just saying, "Oh, I'm just I'm so ready to put 2020 in uh, in the past." And we've had a tough year, right? There've been travel bans and there've been shutdowns. We've uh, been sick, maybe some of us. Uh, others of us have had family members who are sick. Other people that you love that have been sick. Um, in in uh, some of our families, we've had loss and we've not been able to grieve like we normally do in the past. It's just. Uh, our lives have been uh, uprooted in uh, so many ways this year. It's been it's been really tough, but historically speaking, it's not been the toughest year that's uh, ever happened. Right? There have been probably more challenging times. So I would say not probably. There have been more challenging times uh, in the past. We can think about wars, and we can think about a lot of the things that have gone on that uh, have made for uh, not just tough years, but uh, year after year after year being really challenging sometimes. We can think about the first century and where the believers were uh, gathered there in Rome and oftentimes their leaders were arrested. People were uh, threatened with death if they didn't uh, recant their faith. People were taken into custody. They were forced to divulge names of other Christians so that they could be arrested and uh, persecuted. People had their property uh, seized. They had things that were destroyed. Families were torn apart. People were thrown into a prison. It was a challenging time especially to be a believer. And right in the midst of that, this letter to the Hebrews comes. And it's really helped me this week to just go back to chapter one and start looking at this kind of the, the case that the author has been building the whole time. And so uh, we have this uh, time of persecution and difficulty. And he starts out this letter in uh, chapter one, just talking about the incredible uh, supremacy of Jesus. He's a, just greater than anything. And he goes all through chapter one, making that case. And then in chapter two, he says, if Jesus is really this fantastic, then we cannot ignore this kind of salvation. It's too great. This salvation is incredible. We cannot uh, ignore it. And then he goes into chapter three and makes the case that Jesus is greater than Moses. And even into chapter three and chapter four, he just talks about this rest that God was giving his people through Jesus. And this is not a rest that, um, that, that Israel had found any other way to achieve, not through obedience or through their relationship with God that they had had throughout the Old Testament. Jesus was offering them something special. And that kind of gets us up to where we're going to start again today in chapter uh, five, verse 11. He ends uh, in chapter uh, 10, he's been talking about Melchizedek, 
Um, that's how that's how I'm gonna say it. I don't know how it's actually pronounced. That's that's how I'm gonna say it. And he says the writer says I actually have more about uh, more to say about this, but and then he sort of makes this uh, little side trip that we're gonna look at today. He says I have more things to say about that, but first I'm gonna give you a warning and and encouragement. That's what I feel like he does here. First, he gives this warning and he gives it in three parts. And uh, I find the warning section really in chapter five, beginning in verse 11 and going down to uh, six, chapter eight. But I'm just going to, I'm going to give you the first one first. I'm going to read chapter five, verses 11, 12, and 13. And we'll kind of read the passage as we, as we go through. Okay. So this is Hebrews five, starting in verse 11. About this, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you, again, the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child but solid food is for the mature. And we're going to look at that verse in just a couple of minutes. But even when we think about this, about dull of hearing and we need people to, uh, to help us, we just, we just want to stop and just ask God to help us. How about that we do before we dive uh, too far into this passage? Jesus, we know that as uh, humans that we have a tendency to be dull in our hearing. And so I pray that you would help us to hear well and help me to speak well. And Lord, let us be uh, clear today and keep me from error. And I pray that you would help us to apply the truths of your word to our heart. Help us, Lord, to be open to what you would say to us today. And we pray that you would allow your word to fall uh, on fertile soil, like seed, Lord, that uh, a crop of righteousness might be raised up in our lives. So God, as I pray during these time, these moments, we ask in Jesus' name, amen, amen. So. So here's the first warning. The believers refused to practice their faith and thus they became, uh, they refused to become, they didn't mature spiritually. They, did, they refused to practice their faith and then they did not uh, mature spiritually like they should. The writer says they were dull of hearing and they could only handle milk. He's, he's actually calling them spiritual babies. And instead of at this point in their journey, instead of teaching and leading other people, they were looking at their circumstances and they were looking at the difficulty that was around them. And then they were sliding back into some of their old routines. They were ignoring the things of God and they were refusing to enter into this rest that the writer had been talking about back in chapter four. God's given them a rest, but the people are refusing to enter into it. Uh, one thing that's to me really interesting, and I, we're going to talk about it, we're going to reference it anyway, uh, a number of times as we look at this passage. In Hebrews 4, uh, 7, in Hebrews 4, 7, it says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And when he quotes that verse in Hebrews 4, 7, that's actually a quote from Psalm 95, but in Psalm 95, that's talking about something that happened back in Exodus chapter 
17. So this was an important thing that happened in the history of uh, Israel. The people got uh, out into the wilderness and they were ready to move forward. God had provided them with uh, manna, but they were complaining about we don't have any meat. And they were just complaining or they didn't have enough to drink, I think is actually what was happening uh, there. Let me, let me double check that. They, were, they didn't have anything to uh, drink. And so they were saying, oh, we wish we had just stayed in Egypt. Uh, Moses, you brought us out, out here just to kill us. And um, yeah, they didn't have water. That's where Moses strikes the rock and brings uh, water out for them. And so they're, they're standing in this place where God is providing for them. And yet they are complaining about the way that he provided. They were stuck in this spot and they were not moving forward. They refused to practice their faith. Then the Israelites did. And now these believers there in first century Rome were refusing to practice their faith because of fear of persecution, and they were not moving forward uh, either. The second, uh, the second warning is coming uh, right after in verses uh, 14, starting in verse 14, where uh, I say this, they lost the ability to discern, right? They didn't practice their faith. They didn't move on spiritually uh, to become mature. And so they lost the ability to uh, discern. So then I'm going to pick it up in verse 14. He says, solid food is for the mature. Solid foods for the mature. For those who have had their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Chapter six, therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of faith toward God and instruction about washings and the laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Just like the Israelites, these believers are trying to make sense of their current situation apart from their faith. They're just looking around and trying to say what's going on right now in the world and as they try to figure it out in their own power, then they are failing in that process. Verse 14 actually says that their powers of discernment that should be trained through constant practice so they can tell the difference between good and evil, that's become weak. When believers, when we allow ourselves to backslide, the ability to discern good from bad is one of the things that typically goes from us. Rather than uh, make good decisions that are founded on the word, we just start to justify our own behavior. We make excuses about our sin. And the writer here says to the Hebrews, and I think he says to us, you know better. You know better than that. Why are you behaving this way? You know better. We, I'm not going to teach you these things again. We shouldn't be talking about basic things. That's what the writer is saying. We've probably all had some sort of experience where uh, a, a Christian just uh, talking away and they really feel like they're being uh, quite profound right they just feel like they're really eloquent and in the truth they're just saying nonsense right D different times over uh, my ministry time you know you'll have someone come in and say oh god spoke to me he's told me that i'm supposed to divorce my spouse and i'm supposed to marry someone at work and if you've been practicing discernment right and i can tell good from evil then you can very easily say God didn't tell you to divorce your spouse and marry someone at work. What are you talking about? But when we fall into sin, when we refuse to mature, then we lose the ability to discern. We start to just justify our own sin. And in chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, he says, 
we need to be we need to be moving on. He says these things don't need to be retaught. They just need to be obeyed. You don't need to hear these things again. You just need to do the things you already know to do. So that's the second part of the warning. The third part is this. Leaving the faith is choosing destruction. Leaving the faith is choosing destruction. So now we're in uh, Hebrews 6, and I'm going to start in verse 4. For it is impossible, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt for a land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it has been cultivated receives a blessing from God but if it bears thorns and thistles and it is worthless it is near to being cursed and its end is to be burned so i think the third part of this warning they didn't mature spiritually they couldn't discern anymore they're they're really they're really tempted to be leaving their faith behind and the warning is if you leave the faith you choose destruction that's in verse six four right we have this this explanation of the fact that it is impossible for a person who has been enlightened and has tasted the goodness of the word of God, has shared in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's impossible for those people who reject all of this to come back to faith again. He says, rain that falls on the land and uh, brings forth goodness, or, or uh, the rain that falls, uh, land that takes in the rain and takes in the goodness and takes in all of these other things and gives back thorns and thistles that that land will be burned. He calls that land worthless. It's a tough teaching, right? This is a scary kind of warning. And that's why I think it's so important for us to look at all of this in context, right? Because Hebrews 5 and 6 comes right after Hebrews 4. And so there we have the, the writer, he's calling to their mind again, Israel, when they had this moment where they said, God doesn't even love us. Moses, you brought us out here to kill us. We wish we were still slaves back in Egypt. What happened to those people? Well, in Psalm 95, it tells us very clearly, God says, I was angry with those people, with that generation for 40 years. They were disobedient and they got God's wrath as a result. They were unbelieving and God judged them. And so uh, the writer here is looking at these first century believers and he's telling them, you have a choice to make. You have to either obey God and believe in what he's doing in your midst, or you have to look at the world around you. Their unwillingness to live faithfully caused them to have trouble knowing good and evil. That put them in a dangerous spot. They were facing destruction. They got to the place where they couldn't tell what was right and what was wrong. And the writer is saying, when you get into that spot and you start questioning whether God is good or God is evil, you're in a place where you can experience just the wrath of God and you don't want that. Warnings don't get much more serious than this. And so that's why we find this next part so incredibly sweet, right? This part where he gives not a warning, but an uh, encouragement, right? 
And then the rest of this is all encouragement. Why is the encouragement so good? Because the, the writer here reminds us, not just the original readers, not just the people who got this letter, but us as well as we read it. The writer is telling us, Jesus knows you. Jesus knows you, even when you don't know yourself, right? So let me just pick it up here in uh, verse 9. So he has told them, like, this, it's impossible if people fall away. And he's talked about destruction. He's talked about curse. And he's talked about burning. And then in verse 9, he says this. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not, is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for, uh, for his name in serving the saints as you do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So he says in verse nine, we feel sure of better things for you. So we can ask the question, why does he feel so sure? Why is he so confident? He's so confident because God is not unjust. God's not going to take their uh, good works, serving him by serving the saints and then give them, uh, you know, uh, wrath for that. He says, no, you've been changed and you've been serving and God's not going to be unjust. He's going to be blessing you and taking care of you. He wants you to press on and be more earnest, be as earnest as you used to be in the past because the writer wants the, the reader here to have full assurance of hope to the very end. He says, don't be sluggish, right? Uh, where another place when Paul says, don't be weary in well-doing. Don't give up, but press on toward the goal, right? Paul and, and other writers just say this kind of thing over and over. Don't be sluggish. Imitate those who inherit the promises through patience and through faith. We can look back again at four, chapter 4 and chapter 5, and we can see that uh, this, this truth about Jesus is really rooted in what the writer's been talking about this whole time. There back in Hebrews 4, chapter, uh, chapter 4, verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. And then just a few verses later, he says, he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. We are the kind of people who have a tendency probably to become spiritually dull, to look around and say, uh, this, is, this is too difficult for me, right? The situation that I'm in, I just can't handle it. And we uh, maybe feel a certain amount of despair. And Jesus knows who we are, even when we don't know ourselves. We might feel strong, or we might feel like we can't struggle, we might feel like we've got everything under control. But Jesus knows that we are weak and he loves us anyway. He understands our weakness. He's, he's not holding our weakness against us. He's working through this weakness to make himself even more glorious. That's the first part of the encouragement. The second part is this. We can possess full hope until the very end because God is faithful. Chapter 6 I'm going to read 13 down through 20. 
for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom uh, to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Verse 16, for people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly, more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. <coughs> in verse 18, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so we have this, we have this incredible promise and the promise is certain because it is work that God is doing in us. It is not that, it's not work that we are doing for God. It's work that God is doing in us. That's the case that the writer is making here. When God wants to make a promise, he swears by himself because there is no greater thing by which he can swear an oath. He cannot lie. That's the anchor that we have, that Christ has promised to deliver us, and he never lies, and he cannot change. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, Paul says, He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. This is the promise that we have, and it is certain, not because we are involved. It is certain because it is a promise of God. So uh, the writer gets to this place in chapter 6, verse 20. The warning's accomplished, the encouragement's accomplished, and he comes back to that place, right? He said, I, there's more I would love to tell you about Melchizedek, but first, he has his warning and his encouragement, and then here in verse 20, he says, back to the subject at hand, and then we're going to pick that up in a couple of weeks and when we continue uh, on in Hebrews at that time. But before we leave uh, this passage, I think there are a few things that we should uh, learn, right? I think, there, I think there's some things that we need to obey. The first one is this. We need to set our course for maturity, or you need to set your course for maturity. I need to set my course for maturity. Eugene Peterson has a book, uh, and it's titled, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. And that's what the Christian life is about. A long obedience in the same direction. This is uh, our goal as believers that uh, is exactly the same goal that the writer of Hebrews uh, is laying out, especially later on in the letter. When we get to chapter 11, he starts to point out, right, this, this, the heroes of the faith. And he, he points out one person after another person after another person. And he says, that person didn't quit, so you don't quit either. Abraham didn't quit, so you don't quit. David didn't quit, so you don't quit. Uh, Solomon didn't quit, so you don't quit. And he goes down through and even starts to get up into these uh, contemporaries of the first century church. This person is being sawed in half. Don't you dare quit. That person was sawed in half for their faith. They're pulled apart by horses. Don't you quit. The very things that we would think should make us quit is what the writer is using to say, don't you quit. 
You set your course for maturity. We don't quit no matter how hard that it gets. The truth is it matters very little how you begin. What's important is how you end. So do not, do not give up. You have to set your course for maturity and you don't stop even when you feel like your progress is minimal. There are a couple of lists that uh, are in the scripture and I just want to look at them just real briefly. Romans 5, 3 through 5, it says, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame. That's, that's forward momentum, right? We're headed somewhere. We have suffering and it's bringing endurance and endurance brings character and character brings hope. And in 2 Peter 1, 5 through 8, Peter says this, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and your virtue with knowledge and your knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love for if these qualities are yours and they are increasing, they will keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We set our course and we say, sure, I'm knowledgeable, but how am I doing with my self-control? Okay, I've got my, my self generally under control, but how am I about persevering and just staying the course? What about my godliness? And what about my brotherly affection and all these kinds of things? We are in process and we have to put forth effort to grow through maturity. If this was easy, we would be encouraged. Listen, we would be encouraged just continue, but we're not encouraged to continue. We're commanded to persevere, not just continue, but to persevere. Second thing is this. I think we can, uh, from this text, we can obey this idea. Embrace exclusivity. Embrace exclusivity. It's appealing for us really to believe that uh, all people are kind of on their own way and they're all finding their way to God, that in the end, everybody will be just fine. But that's not the testimony of this passage. It's not the testimony of the scripture, period. The writer to the Hebrews here is, he's making it really clear that there's a way to live that ultimately leads to destruction. He says, you are worthless and you'll be burned up like a field. We see this doctrine taught all over scripture. Jesus is the way. Probably my favorite picture is in John chapter six. Jesus is fed the 5,000. There's this massive crowd and they're all around and he teaches and he teaches something that's tough. And people say, this is tough, but we don't like to hear it. And they hear the tough thing and they start to walk away and they walk away and walk away and people walk away until there's nobody left, but the disciples and Jesus. And Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, what about you guys? Are you going to be leaving too? And then in John 6, 68, Peter answers him and says, Lord, where should we go? You are the one who has the words of eternal life. Jesus is the one who is holding the keys to eternal life. The writer of Hebrews back uh, a few verses uh, early in chapter six says, it is impossible for those who have fallen away to be restored to life. And so why is it impossible? It's impossible because there is only one way to be saved, and that is through the cross. So when a person has come in and they, and they said, oh, the cross, yes, I believe that. And then later on, they say, I don't believe the cross. If they don't believe the cross, there is no way for them to be saved. 
when they reject the cross, they reject life. And people who have never heard of the cross of Christ, they cannot have full abundant life. When we understand and when we embrace this teaching, then we become really useful as instruments in God's hands. We can be instruments of redemption because we have to believe that people that are apart from Christ uh, are lost. When we have a people, and sometimes even people in the church who will say, uh, oh, everyone's going to be okay, those people have no discernment between good and evil. The truth is, if we don't love people enough to tell them the truth about eternity, then we do not love people enough. So embrace exclusivity. Then the last thing is this. Put your confidence in Christ and not in yourself, right? Uh, too often in the church, we have these ideas that people can be saved and they can be lost again and saved and then lost again, saved and then lost again. And I'm in the Lamb's book of life and now I'm out of the Lamb's book of life and I'm in and now I'm out, right? With, like this idea somehow that, that we get our name written in, but it's in pencil and then it's just, it's just rubbed right out. And the scripture doesn't teach that kind of thing. Or we, we hear people in the, in the church who kind of pretend like, or seem to believe that uh, they came to Christ through faith, but they maintain their faith by their good works. That's also not something that the scripture teaches. We put our confidence in Christ and not in ourselves at all. Jesus is the anchor for our soul. Jesus is our eternal priest. He is the one that offers full assurance of hope to the very end. So we cannot be sluggish. We cannot be dull of hearing. We should instead be imitators of those people who are imitating Jesus. Let me go back and read uh, just a couple of more uh, verses. These are Hebrews, again, from Hebrews chapter 4. But I think it's a perfect place for uh, us to end. Hebrews 4, in verse 14 it's, this is 14, 15, and 16. Here's what, here's what he says. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence, let us then with confidence, Draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. You should hold fast to your confession because Jesus is with you. And so when we in, invariably, when we see inevitably, we see that we have a need, we can confidently draw near to his throne where we will find grace and we will find mercy. Our sin always tells us to run. But Jesus always says, come, come, come to me. We don't have any confidence in our flesh. We just confess our weakness. And we say, Lord, I, I just, I can't see how I can go on. We confess our weakness and then we trust him for what comes next. If you have questions, you want to talk about these things, you've been watching online, uh, you'll be catching this on Facebook later, you're uh, watching it recorded on YouTube at some point, then drop us an email, ibcbookitinda at gmail.com. If you disagree, we would love to chat with you about it. We'd love to talk to you about these things. You can find us on Facebook uh, at IBC Bukit Inda. If you're not watching this on Facebook and you catch it 
later on. We would love to uh, interact with you. If you say that you've never believed in Christ, but you really realize you're separated from him and you want to believe in him, or if you want help uh, in how to explain the gospel to a friend or a family member, we would love to help you with that. Some of the most heartbreaking conversations I've had with people over the years involve uh, someone who says, my parent is sick. They're at the point of death. They do not believe in Jesus. And I don't know what to tell them. We would love to help you. We'd love to help you talk to your friends and family members about Christ and what he can mean, not just for their, uh, not just for their life here, but for their life forever. So don't, don't give up. Press on toward maturity. You can do it because Christ is at work in you. Let's pray together. Jesus, you are uh, amazing that you would use people like uh, us. And Lord, well, we recognize that uh, in many ways, we're the exact same kind of people that uh, when, we, when we receive bread, we complain that we don't have water. When we have freedom, we wish that we had slavery. And Lord, we thank you for your mercy toward us that while we really do deserve wrath, Instead, you gave us a high priest who can sympathize with our weakness. And you love us. And you are doing a great work, not just in us, but then, Lord, that you've promised to do a great work through us as well. And so we pray that you would bless the remainder of our service. We pray, God, for those who are watching, listening, uh, whether that's uh, now or off in the future at some time. I pray, Jesus, that your hand would be uh, upon them. Lord, we pray that you would make us instruments of reconciliation. Help us to make a difference in the world. Let us bring hope into 2021. Thank you, Lord, for loving us and for the grace that you've shown us. Thank you for the celebrations that we've had with Christmas. Lord, um, very different for many of us than we've experienced in the past, but still you are good to us. And we thank you that your mercies are new every day. We pray you bless uh, our time and bless us as we go from this place, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.